Hopefully, you've already got your Bible open or you were watching it on the screens. If you have one of the Matthew journals, you can grab one of those. But uh, as we just read, we're in Matthew chapter 5, and we're looking specifically at verses 27 through 37. Now, before we dive in, let me say this. For those of you who maybe are just tuning in, if you haven't been a part of our ongoing study, we're in a series in the Sermon on the Mount called Forget What You've Heard. And essentially what we're looking at is the sort of unblushing oddity of the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom of God and the way those values then are made manifest in our life. But if you're just tuning in today and you haven't been a part of that ongoing study, uh, this, this text might feel a little shocking to you. So you just, you know, boot up the computer or whatever and it's like, man, it's all about lust and it's all about divorce and poking out your eyes and all kinds of things, and it can feel a little jarring. It's important that you understand this comes in a certain context. And so before we even look at these specific passages, let's back up a little bit and think about the context for just a second. I'll also say this, there is some stuff in the text today that maybe some would consider to be a little PG-13, right? So uh, depending on what level your kids are at or what kind of parenting style you have or whatever, uh, it's a great opportunity to turn on the Kids Connect video um, so you can have some of these conversations and you don't have to explain to your kids later all the things I'm talking about. Or what, but, but you could also do that too. I'm just letting you know in advance... Maybe, maybe this is a PG. This might be like a little PG, that's all. Um, the context is this. Jesus is giving this sermon on the hillside, and he's talking about a different way of looking at the world. He's talking about a different value system. In fact, he leads by saying, blessed are, or congratulations to, those who are poor in spirit, Jesus says, are in an enviable position. Those who are spiritually bankrupt, that is not the way the culture that Jesus lived in would have thought about spiritual poverty. They would have said, no, the people who have the kingdom of God are the ones who are spiritually robust, the ones who know all of the scripture passages, the ones who have all the religious power and they look super spiritual from a distance. Jesus goes, not so. He says, in the kingdom of God, well, the kingdom of God belongs to those who recognize their own spiritual poverty, their own spiritual bankruptcy. To that end, the, spirit, the kingdom of God belongs to those who mourn all that's been lost because of their brokenness. It's those who were humble and meek, who recognize their brokenness again, who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, who are seeking mercy and peace, right? Jesus says these are the values of the kingdom. And then as we continued in our study, not only did he give us a sense of what the character of a kingdom dweller looks like, but he reminded us that there will be persecution that comes from living this alternate life. Living the life of a follower of Christ will bring on persecution, not only from the outside, but from within, from religious people who don't want to organize their lives this way. And so he knows there will be a temptation for us to kind of water it down, to not live a spiritually impoverished life, to not admit that we are spiritually poor, to not mourn over the loss. And so he comes back and says, no, don't, don't forget, you're meant to be salt and light. You're meant to be a preservative. You're meant to provide illumination and, and, and exposure in the world in which you live. That's what an ambassador looks like. Don't water that down. Don't try and put your light under a basket, he says. Don't lose your saltiness in this world. That's why you're here. He says, I haven't come to get rid of the law or to abolish the law, but I, Jesus says of himself, I've come to fulfill the law, to complete it. He says, we're not going to throw the Old Testament law out because the Old Testament law reveals something about God. It reveals something about his creation and it reveals something about the way we interact with one another. He's like, but but you've looked so closely at the law, you've kind of missed the point of it. And I am here, he says, to reveal it, to fulfill it, to bring it to completion. I want to show you what God was always after. 
And last week, he, he gives us six examples in this section. Six examples of this fulfillment of the law. Last week, we looked at the first of those. And the first had to do with murder. He goes, we, we kind of all know, it's agreed upon, that murder is bad, right? You've heard it said that you shall not kill your neighbor, right? That's in the Ten Commandments. Murder is no good. He says, but I'm here to tell you, right? Forget what you've heard. I'm here to tell you that if you even have hatred in your heart towards other people, if you have contempt towards your brother, if you look at someone else and think of them as empty headed or you call them a fool, you are in violation of what God was after. Murder was just the outworking of an internal transformation. God was always interested in the internal. So it's important as we approach this text, we sort of get the context of what's come before. These three sections we're looking at today talk alternately about adultery and lust. They talk about divorce and they talk about the making of oaths and using the Lord's name. But they're all examples of the same general point, which is God was never interested in just sort of a literal obedience to the letter of the law. He was always interested in a transformative kind of heart that would result in that action. Does that make sense? So Jesus is kind of laying these out. These three are just an example of that. And I want you also to remember that at the end of this section, in in a text we're going to look at next week, Jesus is not only going to say that the kingdom, those who have the kingdom are those who are spiritually impoverished. At the end of the section in verse 540 or in chapter five, verse 48, he's going to say, be perfect, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. So there's a couple things he's wanting us to look at. He's wanting us to see clearly the perfection of our father who is in heaven, right? This, this perfection to which we aspire. He's also wanting us to look at our own selves and recognize how desperately short of perfection we fall. He's trying to get us to look at God and his perfection and then to see ourselves in reflection to that and recognize that no matter how we puff ourselves up, no matter how we spin it, no matter how we slice and dice the law, we are fundamentally bankrupt and broken. So it's good news, right? There's good news in this, which is the kingdom of God belongs to the spiritually bankrupt and congrats... You're all spiritually bankrupt, he says, right? That's who we all are. There's, there's a great message for us in that, even though at first it feels a little bit uncomfortable. I also want to point out the fact that a text like the one we're studying this morning has unfortunately, traditionally been used as a bit of a sledgehammer, right? It's a text that for many, even as you hear uh, the first section about adultery and lust, you look at that and you go... Man, this is a thing I wrestle with, or this is a thing I have a lot of shame over, or this is a thing I have great guilt and grief over, and it's a text that maybe you've tried to avoid because it makes you feel kind of sick to your stomach. Maybe other people have used this text to kind of hit you over the head, and the same is absolutely true for the section about divorce, right? People have used this text. If you're someone in the room this morning, you're somebody who's listening online and you've been through a divorce, you come to a text like this and you go, wow, it kind of feels like Jesus hates me. I want to say from the get-go that Jesus is in no way articulating that. And in fact, the message of the Sermon on the Mount is the exact opposite of that. What Jesus is saying is that divorce stinks. I've never met a divorced person or a person who struggles with lust who didn't recognize it as an awful thing, a difficult thing, a problem, a pain. I've never met anybody who's like, you know what? I've been through three divorces and they were all great, right? 
Everybody sort of recognizes the hardship and the brokenness that happens in divorce. I want you to know if you're listening today or even if you're in the room and you wrestle with some of the things Jesus is talking about, it was never his intention for this to be a sledgehammer that makes you feel increasingly gross about yourself, increasingly divided from other people. And if you're a Christian or a follower of Jesus and you're tempted to use a text like this to pass judgment on other people, let me remind you that you have completely missed the point of Jesus's message. The moment that we take this text and we go, oh, divorced people are the bad ones. We've elevated divorce or we've elevated lust to a position that Jesus doesn't elevate it to. In fact, his point is that all these things are symptoms of brokenness, which every man and every woman share equally. And we saw that affirmed in Ephesians as well, a universal brokenness. So this morning, if you've wrestled with these, or maybe you're wrestling with them right now, maybe you're in the middle of a divorce right now, I don't want you to feel like you're going to get sledgehammered this morning. The message of Christ in this is, you're spiritually poor, you know it, just own it. The kingdom is yours when you turn to me. That's what he's saying, right? There is hope in the text. We don't want to use it as, as, a, as a justification for abuse. I'll also say one other little setup before we dive into the individual text. One other little thing is that the way Jesus approaches these topics, especially the first two or examples two and three, he, he approaches them in a very sort of masculine way, right? He's talking about uh, men lusting over women or husbands giving their wives a certificate of divorce. I want you to understand that the gender in which he approaches these things had more to do with the culture in which he taught it and less to do with the overarching principle. Jesus is in no way saying that women are guilty for all of men's lust. And that's a way this text has been misapplied, right? That women are the, the problem and that men, you know, women should do more because they are the cause of lust. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that women never struggle with lust, Or that women are never the cause of adultery, right? You're not let off the hook simply because he's talking to men here. In the same way, he talks about giving a certificate of divorce to a woman, but that had a lot to do culturally with the fact that it was only a man who could give a certificate of divorce to a woman. Women in this time period were essentially treated like property. Jesus is neither endorsing that nor supporting it. We recognize that's not okay, nor is that God's uh, God's overarching design for marriage. But in this particular culture, it was a man who could issue a certificate of divorce. But what we don't want to do is pull from this text to say that men are the only cause of divorce or that men are the only cause of adultery. That's a unilateral men and women. We all struggle with these things. And at the heart of it, Jesus is getting at what's going on inside us more than he's talking about those literal examples anyway, right? In essence, what Jesus is saying is look at your heart. And even if you've complied with specific pieces of the law, your heart is still broken, right? Your heart is still messed up and you need help. I remember when I, um, when I started high school, I'd gone to a private school uh, for most of my life, uh, elementary and middle school. And then my parents got divorced when I, was, uh, when I was in seventh grade. And I ended up having to go to public school for high school. And when I showed up for my first year, my freshman year of public high school, my math class, they gave us a book. And some of you may have used this book back in the day. My math book was a Saxon uh, math book. I don't even, it was like orange and it had math numbers and symbols on the front. And you guys, I'd never seen a book like this. But the best part of the Saxon math book was that in the back of the book, the back of the book had the answer to every problem contained in the book, right? So you get all the math problems, all the things they're going to have you do. And then in the back, they tell you the answers. And as a kid who'd never had a Saxon math book and who'd never been to public high school before, I thought, I'm going to get straight A's in this school because somebody accidentally printed all the answers at the back, right? I'm going to get an A on every quiz, every test, every assignment. I'm going to pass them all because I already know all the answers, 
Well, what you know, and the reason why some of you laughed and maybe at home you're sort of feeling my experience, what, the reason you laugh when you hear that story is you understand that the goal of giving the answers was not just that we might be able to pass an individual quiz or a test or even get all the answers right. Because if all you do is copy the answers from the end of the book and put them at the end of the equation, the problem is while you might get 100% on the quiz, you haven't learned to do the math. Does that make sense? Jesus is looking at us in each of these examples and he's saying, okay, so you divorced someone the right way, or so you've never murdered, or so you've never committed adultery, or so you you give these oaths and you don't use the Lord's name attached to it, and you feel like you can pat yourself on the back because you feel like you've given the right answer. Jesus is saying, I'm here to tell you that while you may have given the right answer, you haven't learned the math. You haven't figured out that divorce or adultery or murder are symptoms of a deeper problem. And it's the deeper problem that you need me to resolve on your behalf, right? I think this still happens in our day and age today. We we come into religious practice and we go, well, what are the things I have to do? Okay, I'm not supposed to smoke. I'm not supposed to drink. I'm not supposed to dance or whatever the rules are in the particular religious uh, background you come from. And then you just what? You just copy the answers from the back of the book and you go, yep, there you go. I'm getting 100%. Jesus wants to look at us and say, I never just wanted you to copy the answers from the end of the book. I want you to learn the math. I want you to learn what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And if you do that, you won't murder and you won't get divorced and you won't commit adultery and you won't think of other people as sex objects or whatever, right? Here's where Jesus is headed in all of this. He's trying to help us understand how to do the work, how to understand ourselves in the world, not just answer the questions correctly. So let's look at each section in turn, one at a time here. We'll start with uh, verses 27 through 30. The first example is this one of adultery. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He says, you're patting yourselves on the back because you know that in the Ten Commandments, it says explicitly, thou shalt not commit adultery. And there are some of you who are going, yep, I can check the box on that one. I can cross it off the list. I can copy the answer from the end of the math book. I have not had sex with somebody who isn't my wife. And therefore I have adhered to the law. And Jesus is going, forget what you've heard. Forget what you've heard. Because the goal here with Jesus and the goal with the law even wasn't just that you wouldn't sleep with someone who wasn't your spouse, but that you wouldn't be thinking of other people as objects of desire or that you wouldn't see every other human being as a potential sex partner, right? Here's where we get to the little PG-13 part. That was never God's design. And so he expands it to lust. Now, interestingly, when you think about like adultery, right? When you think about adultery, the only thing that's missing in adultery is the physical action, right? They have, if you're talking about lust, you have all the other pieces, right? If you have a hunger for someone who is not your own spouse, if you have this insatiable desire, the only thing that's missing there is that you didn't act upon it. And Jesus is saying, just because you didn't act on it doesn't mean your heart isn't still wrong. So what he says here is, you've heard it said that that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, or we could say everyone who looks at a man with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in, in his heart or in her heart. He expands it to lust. 
Almost all of the social problems that we see, by the way, if you just look at the way these stack up, when we think about our world, almost all the social problems that we see in our world are rooted in the things that Jesus is pointing to here. So anger, which we looked at last week, contempt, which we looked at last week, lust, which we're looking at this week, the breaking of oaths, deceit, all of these things that Jesus will use as his six examples are at the core of why our societies fall apart. Because we look at other people and we see them as a way to satisfy our own desire rather than seeing them as people created in the image of God. The reality is that Job understood what Jesus is saying. Jesus here says, hey, if your eye offends you and your hand offends you, then get rid of those things rather than fail. I want you to, I want you to see a couple of things about this. The first one is, um, Job will say, in, in Job 31, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this to you, but Job makes the connection between what his body does and what's going on in his heart pretty clearly. Just listen to this. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And what would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows from me be rooted out. He says, look, depending on the, the, the position my heart is in and what my heart is turned toward, my hands and my feet and my eyes, those things are all gonna turn in accordance with what I'm hungry to. Jesus says almost the exact same thing in Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew 15, 17 through 20, he says this, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. What's Jesus saying? He's saying all of these things, the adultery and the slander and the deceit and the hatred and the anger, all of those things are symptoms of a heart issue. Job is saying, if my heart is turned the wrong way, then my hands are going to go the wrong way, then my feet are going to go the wrong way, then my eyes are going to turn the wrong way. And, And it would be, it would be fitting or just, Job says, for someone else to eat the fruit of my labor, right? I should be cursed, essentially, is what Job's saying, if I don't check my heart. Jesus is saying, check your heart. It's not just about what you do. That's the fulfillment of this law. He says here, we have to make sure we understand the connection, but it's also important to note here that in this section, he's not saying that we should dismember ourselves, right? He's not saying if, you're, if your eye offends you. I mean, he does literally say that, but here's what he's getting at. He's not saying Christians should be people who chop off their hands and poke out their eyes. Think about the logic of this for a second. If your heart thinks lustfully about another human being, if your heart is already considering other humans as sex objects, which, by the way, as a, as a side note, Everything in our culture is currently designed and organized to make us think about one another as partners for sex or potential partners for sex, right? Every television program, almost all pop music, right? The the current popular novels, all of them are written from a perspective that says, hey, everybody you meet might be somebody you'd think about sleeping with, right? Doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter where they come from, everybody's got potential as as a mate. Can I tell you the Bible speaks explicitly against that idea? The Bible is opposed at every turn to the concept of our culture, which says you have a hundred potential sex mates, right? No, what the Bible says is there's one, there's one person 
There is one person for whom you have sex. That's why we say sex outside of marriage is wrong. That's not just a rule that God invented. It's not just a thing he came up with. We understand from the Bible that marriage, we're going to talk about this in the next section, but marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ in the church, right? Marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ in the church. And sex, or when when a man and a woman become one flesh, inside that union, is meant to happen inside the bonds of an eternal and, and like infinite covenant, right? Because it's a picture of Christ in his church. Sex isn't meant to be the kind of thing that happens between a bunch of different people. That breaks the type. It ruins the purpose for which sex was created. And I don't want to harp on sex too long, but I think there are some people who look at Christianity and go, man, what a bunch of killjoys. They don't want to have any fun. They don't recognize that I'm like a physical being and I have needs and I have desires that have to be satisfied and met. This is a lie that the culture is telling you. God, the one who built us and designed us, designed us for sex. And it's a great thing. But it's only meant to ever be a picture of the bond between Christ and his church. And outside of that bond, it will always be fundamentally broken and wrong. So the mindset in our culture or the mindset in our world that says every person I meet is potentially someone for me to think about having sex with misses the fact that that isn't the way God would have us think about one another. God would have us think about one another. There is one person on the planet, my wife, who I'm intended, she's not going to love that I'm talking about this, but I'm intended to think about as a potential sex partner, right? And everyone else, no matter their gender, I'm meant to think of as family. I'm meant to think of you as my brother and you as my sister, and that's it. And if I think about other people as brothers and sisters, it removes the potential heart issue that goes... Can we? Should we? Will we? I don't know. Maybe. Let's see what can happen. Let's see where this goes. That goes away when I recognize there is one person that God has created me to have that kind of union with, to represent something of who he is, and everybody else is a brother and a sister. Changes it. It changes the way we perceive it. Jesus says, you've heard adultery is wrong. I'm telling you, it's lust. He's not suggesting we cut off our hands or our eyes, because look, here's the thing. Even if you chopped off your hand, it wouldn't change your heart. Even if you poked out your eye, poke out, like you poke out one eye, right? And you go, oh, yeah, I'm, st- I'm still looking at other people as sex objects. I'm still looking at them with lust. So what? You pull out the other eye. You chop off the other hand. You get rid of your feet. Pretty soon you're just a gross torso. Somebody's got to drag you around. It's disgusting, right? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, because he's talking about a heart issue. What, so what then needs to change? Is it my hand that needs to go or my eye that needs to go? No, no, no. What needs to be decapitated here? My confidence in myself. My heart is the problem. My broken and corrupted heart is the problem. And that can only be transformed by the work of Christ. What needs to go? My own confidence in, in this broken heart, right? This broken person. Let's move on here. He says, you've heard adultery is wrong, but, but I was always looking at the heart. If you look with, at another person with lust, you've committed adultery already. Then he says this in 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here's what was happening in their day and age, is that there was a prescription for the way divorce could happen. If you want to read more about that, you can look uh, into Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, verses like 1 through 4. There's There's a prescription there for when a person can offer a certificate of divorce to other person. But the prescription there has to do with if you divorce a woman and then she remarries and then the person she marries uh, dies, then you can't marry her again. It's like this really convoluted thing. That's the certificate of divorce there, right? 
Jesus looks and says, you've heard that it's wrong to divorce except if you give a certificate. There were people who were justifying themselves and they were saying, you know what? I, I did the right thing. I went, I went to, the, to the Levites and I had them write out the paper. I had them do the document the right way and I gave a certificate of divorce and now I'm good. Because I did it legally. Because I did it according to the law. I got rid of my wife in a way that, that feels compliant, right? Jesus steps back and says, well, well, you've copied the right answer, I guess, kind of from the back of the book. But your heart in it is wrong. Why? These people were looking for excuses to set their spouses aside. They were looking for excuses not to be peacemakers, not to seek reconciliation. What has Jesus just said about anger? Jesus has said, hey, if somebody has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and make it right. If someone demands reparation from you, stop before you get to the judge and make it right. Jesus has said reconciliation is part of who we're called to be. So he's looking at people who were going, hey, it's no problem if we get divorced as long as we fill out the right paperwork. And Jesus goes, it was never about the paperwork. We can look deeper at this even in what we see in Matthew 19. Jesus will be asked about this again. Um, in Matthew 19, 3, it says this. The Pharisees came up to him and, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There was some debate among, among religious scholars of the day about whether or not you could be divorced only for infidelity or only for adultery or if you could be, uh, if you could be separated or divorced for any cause. Jesus, they're trying to trap him, right? Jesus answers this way in, in Matthew 19, verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. So the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now this might initially seem really harsh, right? It might initially seem really harsh, but listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying marriage and, and sex always had a purpose, right? That's why at the very beginning, go back to Genesis and it says, man shall leave, you know, man and woman shall leave their parents and they shall come together and be one flesh. That idea of one flesh is not the ceremony with the veil and the rice being thrown or whatever. By the way, there is no marriage ceremony in the Bible, right? So sometimes we think about marriage starting when the pastor reads the thing and then the ring goes on the finger and then they walk down the aisle with the organ playing. There is no such ceremony in the Bible. You want to know when marriage starts? Marriage starts when the two become one flesh. That's where marriage happens, right? And so when we think about adultery, in our day and age, we think about adultery, we think, well, this person has made a vow, they went through a ceremony, and then they slept with somebody else. Jesus is saying, no, adultery isn't just sleeping with somebody who isn't your spouse. Adultery is ruining the picture of Christ and his church. That's what adultery is. And so he says here in this text in Matthew, he says, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, why does he say except on the ground of sexual immorality? In the case of sexual immorality, adultery has already taken place. The picture of Christ and his church has already been destroyed. And I, by the way, if that's a mistake you've made in the past, or if that's something you're wrestling with, I don't, I'm, I'm not, we're not beating you up and neither is Jesus. But Jesus is making the point that marriage and sex existed and exist currently to paint a picture of Christ in the church. And when one of the partners has had sex with someone else, the type and the picture is wrecked. 
Now, that's not any worse sin than greed or pride or anger or any of the other things. It's all just brokenness, right? Being made manifest. But it's adultery. He says adultery is, yeah, that's already happened if somebody slept with somebody else. But if you divorce somebody for any other reason, and then you end up sleeping with someone else, you're still breaking that one flesh bond, right? That one flesh bond, which was meant to be eternal and was meant to be a type. So the way Jesus says it here is, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Why? Because then there's, a, there's like a secondary one flesh union which ruins the type. That's all he's saying. That adultery happens in any case. Right? And that's why, what, what's he saying here? It was never God's plan for there, to be adult, there, for there to be divorce. Even what he says in Matthew 19 is, Moses gives you a way to do it legally when that adultery has already taken place. But he even only does that because of the hardness of your hearts. It was not meant to be so from the beginning. Well, what was meant to be so from the beginning? That you and I, each and every one of us, would find that one person, that one person created in God's image, which we were meant to find as a spouse, right? And that doesn't mean we, we couldn't have different... I'm not saying that God ordains from the beginning of time that you'll only marry one person and you've got to go and find them. But when your heart attaches to that one individual, that you leave your parents' homes and you become one flesh, and that one flesh union paints a picture of Christ that is never meant to be wrecked or sundered, right? It's always meant to be held. Jesus says, you're patting yourself on the back because you filled out the paperwork correctly. But what I'm telling you is that even though you've copied the answer from the end of the book, you've missed, you've missed the math. The math is paint a perfect picture. I love uh, what Dallas Willard says about this. He says, divorce in almost every case is the result of anger, contempt, and lust. In almost every case. That's not exclusive. But think about the things Jesus has already talked about. Reconciliation. He says divorce uh, is a result of that. The meek, the merciful, the peacemaker who tries to reconcile and tries to restore, that, that is a person who understands kingdom values. I, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, just to back this up, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound that I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 12 and following says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? You hear that one flesh union idea again. That he who joins with the prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Why? Because sexuality was always meant to be a picture of Christ and his church. Jesus says, don't pat yourself on the back because you filled out the right forms. Really do the math here, which is what? Reconcile. Love your spouses and work to reconcile with your spouses the way Christ loves the church. The third example that he gives us in this particular section is, is this. Oh, one last thing as we're talking about adult. I know you're probably like, move on, buddy. Enough. 
But the last thing I'd want you to see here is if you're somebody who's in the room today or somebody who's listening and, and you've committed adultery or you've been divorced, I just want to bring your mind really, we don't have to spend a ton of time here, but I want to bring your mind again to John 8 when Jesus has an adulterous woman brought before him. And I want you to think about how long Jesus spends shaming her or beating her up or hitting her over the head with the fact that she has ruined the type of Christ in the church. You know how much time he spends doing that? Zero. Jesus doesn't beat her up. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't put her in her place. He just says, go and don't do this anymore, right? Think about Jesus with the woman at the well at John 4, who's had all kinds of husbands and the guy she's living with now is not her husband. You know what Jesus is doing? He's not shaming her. He's not beating her over the head. He's not reminding her of the fact that she's broken her one flesh covenant. He's trying to offer her living water, right? He's trying to offer her living water. So if you're here today and this has been a struggle for you or something you failed in, I want you to know without any question what the heart of Jesus for you is. And it's grace. It's grace. Okay, last, last one. Go, going back to this. Let's look at, he talks about oaths. He says, again, you've heard, this is verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What was happening is that the, the, uh, the, the religious leaders at the time, they understood that the Bible said you're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain, and that if you swear an oath with the Lord's name attached and you don't fulfill it, you're in violation of the law. That's the answer they copied out of the back of the math book. But Jesus says, right, it isn't just that, because here's what they started doing. They started making oaths by other things. So they're like, well, if it's wrong to, to like wiggle out of our commitments when we've used the Lord's name, then here's what we'll do. We just won't use the Lord's name, right? And we'll swear on earth or we'll swear on heaven or we'll swear on our own heads or we'll swear on all these other things. And that gives us a little bit of wiggle room. And then when we don't want to keep our commitment, we can just say, well, we didn't swear on the Lord, Right? We didn't swear on the Lord. We swore on these other things. Jesus goes, you feel like you can pat yourself on the back because you're not using the Lord's name in vain. But I'm telling you, none of these other things do you have power over either. The earth belongs to the Lord. Heaven belongs to the Lord. You don't even have the power to change the color of one hair on your head, he says. Don't swear by anything at all. Well, why? What's he saying? He's saying you need to be the kind of people, and we saw this in James 5, verse 12, not too long when we're studying it. You need to be the kind of people whose yes is yes and whose no is no. Not people who are looking for tricky ways to get what they want and to wiggle out of their commitments. Not people who are trying to finagle a way to feel like they've justified themselves but are in actuality in violation. I remember uh, when I was in high school, I had a U.S. history teacher who wouldn't let us wear hats in class. And his rule was, if you wear a hat in my class, I will come and I will take your hat and I will keep it until the end of the semester, right? That's the deal. That's the consequence. So I went to a thrift store and I bought 50 hats and I wore a different hat every day. And every day that dude took my hat away and put it in a drawer and the next day I wore a different hat. What was I doing? Well, was I complying with his rule? Yeah. Was I, was I sitting under the consequence of it? Absolutely. Was my heart in a good place? Certainly not, Right? At the end of the semester, he gave me a big trash bag full of hats, right? What was I doing there? I, I was trying to justify what I wanted to do. A heart that's looking for a way to manipulate or a heart that's looking for a way to deceive. Jesus says that kind of coercion is evil. He says, don't do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You shouldn't have to embellish what you say 
with a bunch of extra oaths and swearing, right? What do we, we talk about having a platform of demonstrable faith that gives us the ability to prophetically engage. That demonstrable faith means that when we say something, we do it. We say we're going to show up. We show up. We don't have to swear by a bunch of other things. And what's the point in that swearing anyway, but to prove that maybe we're trying to find some wiggle room. Jesus says, don't do it. It is not insignificant that the teaching here on adultery and lust, on divorce and reconciliation, and on keeping your oath, it's not insignificant that those things come together. You can see the flow of Jesus' thinking, right? That these things work together. That we're called to be people of integrity. We use all kinds of ways to justify ourselves. We copy the answers from the back of the math book, but we haven't learned how to live like Jesus. And here he is saying, I I haven't come to get rid of the law. I've come to fulfill it. And the fulfillment is your heart needs to be transformed. He wants us to look at ourselves. After you listen to a passage like this about trying to manipulate the truth to get what you want, about, about infidelity, about lustful looks, right? That lingering look. I would guess that pretty much all of us, after the teaching last week on anger, and we listen to all of this and we go, yeah, I'm a mess, right? If it's not just the answers from the back of the book, if it's the actual math, I'm a mess. Good. That's exactly where Jesus wants you. Because the moment you feel that sense of spiritual poverty is the moment that Jesus can look at you and say, it was never about your own ability to be righteous. It was always about my ability to give you the kingdom of God by my grace. Don't forget, by the way, that Jesus in all, well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus refers to himself as a bridegroom. And in John, John the Baptist refers to Jesus as a bridegroom. What's the picture there? Well, it's a reminder to us that if our human marriages and our human unions are meant to be a picture of Christ in the church, which never falls apart, which never is is, uh, involved in infidelity or adulterous, right? It's important for us to remember that Jesus loves us even in our mistakes, even in our flaws, even in our brokenness, even in our sin, that our bridegroom, our bridegroom does not abandon us. He does not turn his back on us. He does not write us a certificate of divorce, but he is faithful. He is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. That is the message of the kingdom. You feel spiritually poor after listening to some of these? Good. That puts you in exactly the right spot to recognize the beauty of the grace of our bridegroom to not abandon us, even in our mess. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a sense of joy and excitement, a sense of liberty in recognizing that at the, at the end of the day, with the way you fulfill the law, we recognize that we are incapable of doing the math. Now we can chop off our hands and we can poke out our eyes, but we can't do anything about our hearts and our hearts are the problem. God, we need you and your power and your grace to take our our heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh to redeem us and to restore us. And we praise you that you are a faithful bridegroom who even in our unfaithfulness does not abandon us, but holds us close to your heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.